Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is Trapped Between Pavement and the Pacific. A surprisingly dense and isolated population of Humboldt Martins is challenging our assumptions about the species. Written by Julia Rosen and narrated by Adam Dubow. Skye looks official in her orange vest. She takes in her surroundings, gathering details that would escape most observers. With bright eyes and ramrod posture, she's ready to work. But first, she has to pee. She squats on her haunches, then trots off down a sandy track. Susie Marlowe jogs after her. Marlowe and Skye both work for rogue detection teams, a company based in Washington State that enlists dogs to track wildlife for conservation research. Today, the pair will search for Humboldt Martins. Martins belong to the weasel family and look a bit like squirrels that have been stretched out and trained for battle. Cute, but ferocious. They have long bodies and short, toothy snouts with oversized ears that protrude above piercing black eyes. Their lush brown fur brightens to gold on their chests, and their powerful limbs end in bouquets of razor-thin claws. Most Pacific Martins live in the mountains, but Humboldt Martins, a rare subspecies, make their home along the coast. They once ranged from Northern California to the Oregon-Washington border, filling the ancient, towering forests that fringe the Pacific shore. Now, they've all but disappeared and recently gained formal protection under the U.S. Endangered Species Act. To everyone's surprise, however, scientists discovered one of the few remaining populations here on a strip of overgrown sand dunes 75 kilometers long and half a kilometer wide. This stand of moss-cloaked shore pine and punishing shrubs in the Oregon Dunes National Recreation Area where I now trail Sky, Marlowe, and Marlowe's colleague Jennifer Hartman at a COVID-safe distance, looks nothing like the majestic old-growth forests of yore. But the Martins don't seem to mind. Indeed, this is the densest population anywhere on Earth. It's also one of the most imperiled. The Martins face threats from cars, development, and worst of all, isolation. More than 100 kilometers of fragmented forests and roads separate them from their nearest neighbors and the genetic diversity they could bring to a population living under involuntary quarantine. Researchers hope that by understanding how these animals have hung on despite such pressures, they will glean clues about what Humboldt Martins in general need to survive and, perhaps, someday thrive. After a few minutes of walking, Skye bolts into the brush. Marlowe follows, forcing her way through a wall of vegetation with no obvious human-sized openings. As we bushwhack after them, Hartman jokes that this is what you might call crapitat. I had already seen the evidence. Hartman's purple backpack, which looks as if it had been mauled by a bear. This, she'd said, is what Humboldt Martin hiking does. For decades, Scientists feared that Humboldt Martins had gone extinct. Then, in 1996, 
researchers spotted telltale prints on a track plate left in the woods of Northern California. In the years following, they found more signs of the animals. Perhaps the Martin's resurrection shouldn't come as a shock. The animals have scrappy, bold personalities. Think like a 17-year, 18-year-old teenager, says Katie Moriarty, a wildlife ecologist at the National Council for Air and Stream Improvement, a research institute established by the forest products industry. They will do whatever they want. Humboldt Martins are fiercely territorial. They constantly patrol the borders of their home ranges, traveling an average of six kilometers a day. You have an animal that's the size of a kitten, Moriarty says, yet they are moving almost as much or more than a mountain lion on a daily basis. To maintain such an active lifestyle, a marten must eat up to a quarter of its body weight every day, in the form of chipmunks and songbirds, berries and insects. Martins enjoy other foods, too, including bacon and strawberry jam, which Moriarty uses to bait and feed her research subjects when she captures them. You want to basically give them a bed and breakfast in the trap, she says. Martins themselves make tasty snacks for predators like bobcats and owls, so they stick to forests with plenty of shrubs and downed logs where they can hide. They raise their young in the protected cavities of trees and snags. But these strategies haven't shielded them from the greatest threat of all, humans. By the time the naturalist Joseph Grinnell identified Humboldt Martins as a distinct subspecies in 1926, demand for their luxurious pelts had already made the animals scarce. California banned trapping of coastal martins in 1946, but then came industrial logging. Timber companies harvested the biggest, oldest trees in which martins made their dens, and clear-cuts left little protective cover on the landscape. Today, Humboldt martins occupy just 7% of their historic range. Scientists now know of only four populations, each estimated to contain fewer than 100 adults. One resides just east of Redwood National and Redwood State Parks in Northern California. One straddles the California-Oregon border, and another hugs the southern Oregon coast near the Rogue River. In these three, most Martin sightings have occurred in large patches of old-growth forest. But the population on the Oregon dunes, which Moriarty and her colleagues first documented in 2015, is by far the most intriguing. It's kind of changed everyone's thinking about Humboldt Martins, Moriarty says. Skye hits on her first Martin scat in a grassy clearing. She waits eagerly for her reward, her large black ears quivering above her brindled brow. Hartman logs the find, noting its location and appearance. Then she picks up the scat using two reeds of dry grass as chopsticks to avoid contaminating it with her DNA. She catches a whiff of its sweet, musty aroma, a hallmark of the weasel family, then stuffs it into a manila envelope to dehydrate later. Given the animal's tenuous situation, scientists try to limit handling live martens as much as possible and to exploit non-invasive techniques like studying their poop. Later, Moriarty and her co-workers will analyze the genetics of the scat to help determine how many martens live here and what they're eating. Meanwhile, 
Marlo pulls a yellow ball from a leg harness she wears for quick access and tosses it to Skye. For the next several minutes, they play a game of fetch that is more theoretical than literal. Marlo lunges at Skye as if to take the toy, and the delighted dog chuffs, rolls, and bows over her prize. Skye is a stout, mid-sized mutt, and like the other rogue dogs, she's a rescue, a misfit of sorts. She came from a shelter in New Mexico, where it became clear that she wasn't cut out for the leisurely life of a family pet. But she's well-suited to her new vocation, which has involved searching for endangered pangolin in Nepal and surveying wind farms for bird and bat casualties. We're actually trying to change the conception of what a bad dog is, says Hartman. Far from problem cases, the rogue dogs are wildlife heroes. Like Skye and her ilk, the Dune Martins haven't always fit in. Their existence challenged the long-held belief that Martins primarily live in old-growth forests of redwood or Douglas fir. The short, gnarled trees here are no bigger than a fir branch, and the forest itself is young and somewhat artificial. Rolling dunes used to cover the area, but in the early 1900s, government agencies and private landowners planted beach grass to stop sand from blowing onto coastal roads. The grass stabilized the ground enough for shrubs to root, including invasive scotch broom. Trees eventually followed, and by the middle of the century, a scrubby forest had sprouted. Moriarty's discovery of martens in these woods stunned everyone. The animals had occasionally turned up flattened on Highway 101, which separates the dunes from the rugged mountains to the east, but most scientists assumed the animals died while venturing toward the ocean. In reality, it was the other way around. Research by Moriarty and her team has revealed that the shore pine forest makes a good home for martens because of its dense understory and abundant food. In fact, the 70-odd martens here have the smallest home ranges of any in the world. They're as packed in as they can get, Moriarty says. She's come to suspect that the martens' presence in this strange environment is actually a window into their past. Similar stands may have grown along flat, sandy stretches of the Oregon coast before towns and housing developments replaced them, and martens likely used that habitat until it vanished. The real question, then, isn't why the martens are here. It's why there are so few of them in the vast inland forests that once formed the stronghold of the range. Before scientists started looking for Humboldt martens in Oregon, they figured they would find plenty in the sea of conifers that washes over the western edge of the state like a green tide. We didn't really have any reason to believe that martens weren't there, says Sue Livingston, a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That rationale, factored into the agency's decision not to protect the animals in 2015, prompting environmental groups to sue. But as researchers ramped up survey efforts in the state over the next few years, they didn't find many martens at all. In fact, Moriarty hasn't detected a single one in the Douglas fir forests across Highway 101 from the dunes. No one knows exactly what's holding them back in Oregon, and in California for that matter. It appears as though pockets of suitable habitat still exist, Livingston says, 
but they are separated and surrounded by previously logged forests where martens encounter threats like predation. Bobcats, in particular, may thrive in young, fragmented forests. In one study, they killed roughly half of the radio-collared martens that scientists were tracking in a heavily logged forest in Northern California. On the dunes, by contrast, researchers rarely spot bobcats. A lack of shrubs probably also hurts martens in plantation and second-growth forests, since understory plants struggle to grow beneath the closely spaced trees, says Tall Levy, a wildlife ecologist at Oregon State University. Alternatively, martens may have just taken too big of a hit to bounce back, Livingston says. Roaring rivers, busy roads, and sprawling clearcuts stand between existing populations and other possible habitat presenting formidable barriers to natural dispersal. The last remaining martens have had it hard enough. Without newcomers, the chances of inbreeding go up among these isolated groups, bringing heightened susceptibility to disease and other stresses. Martens also face threats from rodenticides and wildfires, which have recently consumed substantial chunks of their habitat in both Oregon and California. Sorting out the importance of these factors could have significant practical implications for martin conservation. They are extremely imperiled, Levy says, but right now, it's not at all clear what one should do. Levy did take one obvious step. He helped pressure Oregon officials to ban trapping on the dunes and in most of western Oregon in 2019. Some private timber companies, which own much of the land in coastal Oregon and northern California, have changed their operations to benefit the animals. Under an agreement with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Green Diamond Resource Company has been sparing trees with large cavities and active dens. And they're leaving logging debris on the ground to provide cover, says Keith Ham, conservation planning manager for the company's California Timberlands. I'm not saying that everything's well and good, he says. Still, the more we look, the more martens we find. But these efforts don't go far enough, says Tierra Curry, a scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, a national environmental organization that has sued repeatedly to secure federal protection for Humboldt Martins. She'd like to see landowners set aside corridors of forest to reconnect populations and restore potential habitat. The Siuslaw National Forest is already trying to promote old-growth conditions in the Douglas fir forest north of the dunes, but it will take decades before those efforts have any hope of benefiting martens, which need help now, Levy says. He would rather see managers try quicker, more targeted measures, like thinning trees in replanted stands to encourage shrub growth. Some researchers have floated the idea of relocating animals to help them expand their range, but Levy and others fear it may be too risky. Humboldt Martins will likely receive more attention now that they have won protection under the Endangered Species Act. The August decision, which came two years in a lawsuit after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service first recommended listing the animal as threatened in 2018, could bring more funding for martin research and conservation. But listing can also bring challenges, especially if efforts to save a species pit certain industry or advocacy groups against each other. To restore martin populations across their historic range, everyone will need to work together, Moriarty says. As soon as it becomes an us-versus-them issue, I don't feel like the martins win. From somewhere in the woods, Marlowe lets out a whoop 
Oh, good dog. That was so good. Good job, she says in a sing-song voice. Sky has found another Martin poop. It smelled really good, Marlow tells Hartman as they collect the scat. It looks like a pair of dun-colored cheese puffs. The paradox of the Dune Martins is that, despite their high density, the population also teeters on the verge of annihilation. The dunes actually host two groups of martins, separated by the Umpqua River, and each has barely enough adults to remain viable. For both, losing just two to three adults per year could send the population spiraling toward extinction, according to a 2018 study by Moriarty and her colleagues. And new threats continue to arise. A Canadian pipeline company hopes to build a liquefied natural gas terminal on private land at the southern end of the dunes. The Jordan Cove project recently gained a key federal approval, though the state has so far refused to grant several permits, leaving its fate in limbo. The U.S. Forest Service also plans to rip out invasive plants growing on the dunes to restore the area to its natural state and benefit species like snowy plovers, threaten shorebirds that nest in open sand. But Moriarty and others have warned that doing so could disturb the very vegetation upon which the martins rely. Now, the agency must aim to strike a delicate balance as it proceeds with restoration efforts in the coming years. The many pressures martins face only underscore the urgency of scientists' work here. Walking back to the car at the end of the day, Hartman and Marlowe confess that searching for Humboldt Martins demands more, both physically and mentally, than the other animals they study. If we could pick, no one wants to do this one, Hartman says, but I think it actually might be one of our more valuable projects. Marlowe agrees. I'm not out there collecting poop for fun. I'm working my butt off for a reason. So is Skye. Trotting ahead, nose low, ears high, she is a dog on a mission. Perhaps this misfit can help another find its place in the world. Find more coastal news and stories from Hackeye Magazine on our website at www.hackeyemagazine.com. All of our feature stories are part of the Hackeye Magazine Audio Edition podcast, which you can subscribe to through your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with your friends. And don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.